Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I had a whole list of like categories of people I wanted to invite on the podcast to be interviewed, but really it's simple. Like if you're a cisgender white male who is able-bodied, there are probably other spaces where your voice will be amplified. And the powerful podcast is not that space. Even though I dearly love and adore the thought processes of many cisgender able-bodied white men. I really do, but this is not their space. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. This is episode 402 of Suncast. As always, thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you possess. That's your time. I'm so grateful to have you here and so excited to share with you today's entrepreneurial journey. Well, today's entrepreneur has engineering degrees in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT and USC. And our conversation is wicked smart but truly from the heart. You won't want to miss it. My favorite quote from today, I hope you'll love, is spacecraft are microgrids in the sky. As co-founder and CEO of MuGrid Analytics, Amy Simpkins solves wicked problems at the intersection of energy technology and economics using math and modeling. MuGrid provides bankable techno-economic analysis, optimized control, and project development of renewable energy, energy storage, and yes, microgrids to maximize economic return, increase energy resilience, and promote energy equity around the world. She's also the host of the very recently released and fantastically fabulous Power Flow podcast, which amplifies diverse voices in the energy revolution. Amy and I dig into economic optimization, community resilience, how to approach the discussion around tech that just doesn't work as promised. And yes, we even explain what techno-economic even means. If you like what you are listening to, then I think you're going to love the other 400 additional founder stories and startup advice in the rest of Suncast. You can find that at my Suncast. Com. Of course, that's where you can subscribe to our newsletter as well as subscribe to the show by clicking through to your player of choice. And that way you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like what you're about to experience. You can also check out our YouTube channel. You can find out more about our fantastic sponsors. You can always see other fun ways to keep in touch with us as well, like today's three o'clock Eastern time webinar with my friends from Scanafly, all about drone-based site surveys and system designs. Actually, listen to the mid-roll this time so you don't miss out on the details. All right, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I alluded to, if you are finding yourself in the industry and uh, you've decided that this is where you want to be, you're in good company. Today's guest 
has decided from a number of factors that she's leaning in to take massive climate action, leveraging her background, her connections in the industry, her family experience, et cetera, and is helping with areas that are often hard to understand in the industry. Her company, MuGrid, provides bankable techno-economic analysis. We'll get into what that means. Optimized control, project development, more than dabbles in energy storage and microgrids. And they do it all as a family-run business that amplifies diverse voices in this energy revolution that we call the clean energy economy. Amy Simpkins, welcome to Suncast. Hi, Nico. It's great to be here. I think that you have such a great presence about you. Is there anything in particular about your background or any particular training that you feel is a is a sort of a foundation for the way that you show up with this, I feel like, uh, perpetual positivity and uh, and confidence. You have a particular sense of confidence. It's like a calm confidence. Thank you. First of all, I received that. And it's, an, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting question because, you know, I'm a very passionate person by nature. And when I get attached to something, when I get attached to an idea, I go all in. There's pretty much no halfway with me. And there's been several, you know, I've worked on various and sundry, diverse things throughout my life. And every time I I finish, one of those things comes to a close. I'm like, well, that was wasted because now I'm doing something completely different. And so when I was uh, in high school, well, when I, elementary school, middle school, high school, all of my kind of early school, I was definitely into like performance, theater, singing. We were just talking about performance before we recorded. And actually then in college, as I was majoring in aerospace engineering at MIT, like total like tech, you know, had my head all in the math and the physics and everything. I was the musical director of an acapella group at MIT, the Corollaries. And yes, that is a mathematical musical pun. You did hear that right. (laughs) It's corollary spelled with a C-H. So like choir. Of course, choral. Choral areas, I love it. Exactly. And honestly, that background in performance is really like, I also, we were just talking about this, but I also have had that feeling that I, I love being on stage, which is very odd because I'm introverted and I need lots of time to like rest and recover by myself. But I also do love to be, in front of people, I love to spin stories. I love to connect with people through story, whether that's fiction, fiction story or sung story or, you know, a lot of what I do here now in the energy industry is spinning narratives, helping clients understand the why so that we can get to the how of why they want to do this, about why it's a good investment and stacking up, you know, all of those reasons. That's all story. That's all narrative. And so, it's one of those common threads that run throughout my life. And I look back and, you know, when I was a high school student, I had so many friends who said, I want to go be on Broadway. And I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to be on Broadway. So what's the point of all this? Um, <laughs> You're very pragmatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's, what a good question, though, because here we are. And like, why? how do I show up with confidence? And it's like, it's part of that persona, I think, of, you know, being willing to be out front and be a storyteller. Were there any moments in life where storytelling was handed down to you in some way? Like what inspired you to look 
through the lens of storytelling in life? I don't know. I mean, I definitely have like my family background. I have a lot of like music and theater types in my family, but I definitely, you know, as I move through the world, I I, I just have a very, I take a very integrative view on the world where I, I try to bring my whole self to work no matter what I do. And that's just part of my personality. You know, I definitely, as I moved into engineering, I said, I'm a left-brained person. I'm a math person. I'm a numbers person. And I tried to fit myself into a box that looked like that. But really, I'm also I'm also a poet. <laughs> I also love words. I also love the play of words and the sound of words. And like, that's not left brain stuff. And more and more, I think the story of my career is bringing those two things closer and closer together is that like, yeah, I can be an engineering nerd who loves technology and loves building things with my hands and seeing equipment work. And I can also be a poet and a storyteller. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. They actually can work together because we need people who can tell the story of the technology. You know, if I look at the your formal training, I'm tempted to believe that you at one time had a desire to be an astronaut. What would give you that idea? Didn't we all though? Didn't we all have a desire to be an astronaut? <laughs> I never did actually. No. Oh, wow. I I wanted to I wanted to write songs about astronauts. Oh well. That's yeah. good too. You know, you went to MIT and uh, studied aeronautics and astronautics. You have a master's from USC in astronautical engineering. Your first uh, internship was none other than NASA. But I'm curious as I look at kind of the early formation of your career, how you navigated, I'll say the idea of a, a transition from perhaps uh, early astronaut hopes or working at pl- a place like NASA and starting your job in, uh, in your career at Lockheed Martin, none other than in their space systems division. How do you wind up in the clean energy revolution? Can you walk me through uh, the sort of the path that you've taken there and maybe along the way you can give us give us a sense of when you were first introduced to the idea that that terrestrial power applications were also important. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question and it's it's not as rare as you might think. There are actually a lot of people who have made a similar transition because they are, you know, well I'll start with this and then I'll go back to the story. But uh, we we always like to joke, and and when I explain my background to like prospective clients and such, I'll often say, "What are spacecraft but microgrids in the sky?" Mm. I mean, really, you have a piece of technology that has to be self sustaining. They, at a very visceral level, have to generate, store, distribute, condition, and keep safe their own power. And they are absolutely critical infrastructure because you can't just send a guy with a wrench out to fix anything. No one can go out there and unplug it and plug it back in. You know, anything that can be fixed has to be fixed from here with a software patch. And so it's not really that far off. A lot of the modeling that we do for system performance is very similar to the modeling I do in energy. Now, having said all that, I didn't know that at the time that I made the transition. I didn't know how consistent it was. So you are correct in saying I did want to be an astronaut and it was a dream that wasn't just a childhood dream. I was definitely on that path and on that track to the point where even when I was at Lockheed, one of the projects that I worked on was the Orion Project, which is 
NASA's mm-hmm. next manned space vehicle. I worked in Houston with crew on crew systems on anything that the astronauts would touch, trying to hold space for the requirements that were important to them and make sure those were reflected in design. And somewhere, well, you know, that's still definitely, I mean, to this day, I, I did, I did apply for the astronaut program. Um, as of today, I think my application, I applied in this last cycle, actually. Oh, you know? wow. Well, I was like, I can't not do that. Like, I can't not, sure. I can't just leave that dangling out there. I am on the older side now of their, <laughs> their desired demographic. And, you know, there's a whole lot of reasons why I don't expect it to necessarily go anywhere. I think my application out there still says pending. So you can take that for what it is. So you're saying there's a chance. There's always a chance. The first thing that happened in my career journey was actually the desire to be an entrepreneur. It was a desire Mm. to kind of leave the corporate structure. And it was a strong enough desire to determine my own destiny, to feel that I wanted to have a higher impact than I could make inside of a large monolithic corporate organization and feeling that I could do that better on my own or as part of a small team. And that desire actually was bigger than the desire to work in spaceflight, which shocked Mm. me at the time because all (laughs) I ever wanted to do was work in space exploration. What sort of did it for me, and you you mentioned already that MuGrid is a family business. Um, My business partner is my husband, Travis, Dr. Travis Simpkins, PhD in electrical engineering from MIT. And he spent seven years at the National Renewable Energy Lab basically revolutionizing the way that they did modeling and analysis of energy systems. He brought, you know, kind of the rigor to modeling for them. And it was the kind of thing, and I, I think you see this more and more. It sounds, you know, when you think of family businesses, sometimes you don't think of it this way, but as we have more like, you know, smart people who connect, you know, more engineers who connect, he would come home from work and talk about what he was working on. And we would talk shop at, over the dinner table or after the kids went to bed. And I would be like, wow, that's that's really interesting stuff, actually. You know, and and then he would he would kick ideas over to me. And I would be like, well, you know how I would approach that. And I and he was he he would say, Yeah, okay, like let me take that in and see, you know, see how that goes down. And so we would we would bounce these ideas off of each other. So I, when I started my own business, I started as a business consultant and saying, and this was kind of the first of that integrative thinking where I said, hey, like building a business is just an, an, an exercise in design. Instead of designing a widget or a spacecraft, we're designing a business model and we're designing your product offerings. And that was kind of my shtick as a business coach. And um, I did that for a few years until Travis said, hey, I, you know, I keep getting people who want me to consult. And I said, well, what if you actually started your own consulting business? And he said, well, I'm not sure I want to do that by myself. And sort of the rest is history. We joined forces and I got really excited both about the idea of clean energy the idea of what he was working on because and what he wanted to form into his consulting company based on our conversations about the industry and the idea of creating an entrepreneurial environment for our family. And it's funny because all of those were the drivers. It Whereas the driver for me to go into space exploration was the exploration of space. Like that is what I wanted to do with my life. 
This was about all these other ancillary things. It was a cool tech to be working on, interesting academic discussions, creating this entrepreneurial lifestyle for our family. And oh, by the way, like we get to save the planet at the same time. That seems great. You know, that was a secondary thing. And as we've gone more and more into it, you know, I'm able to use my knowledge to move more and more into a direction that's more, even more impactful. I want to, for those who perhaps aren't as avid a listener of Suncast as uh, as Amy is, <laughs> uh, I want to credit you, Amy, for uh, bringing Travis to my attention. Uh, and also it shows a, a, a great deal of humility on your part as well. Uh, yeah, really early on in Suncast, I mean, we're talking episode 56, I had Travis on the show because his publicist, aka CEO, <laughs> reached out and said, hey, this guy Travis knows a thing or two about microgrids and it seems like you like to interview you know, founders and leaders. Uh, would you be interested in the story? And I'd never heard of Travis and uh, I got on the phone with him and really enjoyed what uh, sort of like the, uh, just the human that he is and how, how his, his critical thinking skills and the story that you helped sort of curate. And it was quite a while before I realized that it was all sort of orchestrated through you in, in what I felt like is a, such a great, and it is emblematic of how you guys have evolved the business over the last four years, like this great grassroots approach to uh, sharing the story of how uh, the modeling and, and deep thinking that you all through the lens of MuGrid and the vehicle of MuGrid have been able to afford companies who you know, don't have that staff in-house uh, for those who are unfamiliar with that story and you would like to go back and listen to kind of like a, 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 an old version of Suncast that is nonetheless a really great interview, Travis Simpkins talked about the future of microgrids on episode 56. We'll link to that in the show notes. And I do hope you'll go back and, and hear sort of the other side of the family talk a bit about what MuGrid is. And we're going to dig into some other elements of how the industry's evolved in the last four years since then. But I want to thank you for that because... It was one of the first times where someone kind of cold outreached and said, hey, I think you would appreciate having this guest on your show. And, and we had listeners reach out and say, hey, this was really instructive and helped me think through kind of microgrids. So I appreciate the, the insight. Awesome. You mentioned something that I'm not sure I really re had thought about or, or realized. And this this idea of the entrepreneurial lifestyle. Can you unpack a bit what that means for you or what it meant and, and maybe how it's evolved? Yeah, I think that's key. Like what it meant and how it's evolved is really the core of the question, because what yeah. we thought it was going to mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, maybe is something different at the time. And so, you know, picture it 2016, we had three sm very small children, but we also had a kind of a hobby, I will say, of international travel. And that's a long, ra I think you went down this rabbit hole actually with on Travis's episode so I won't belabor the point, but we we were traveling with the kids a lot, um, which we love doing. We wanted the flexibility in our jobs to travel. And also at the time, you know, we were, felt very committed to homeschooling the kids, partly because of the flexibility to travel and kind of take off wherever we wanted and not be restricted to, you know, schedules and vacation times and breaks and things Singing like that. Singing from my songbook right here. And all, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also- because, you know, I loved the idea of raising independent thinkers, you know, who were driven by their own motivations and their studies and all of that. And we did that. We we began by homeschooling the kids. Um, my oldest, who is now 10 years old and in fifth grade, we homeschooled from 
K to the beginning of three. And what snuck up on us, which is something that we didn't really see coming. There are a couple of things we didn't see coming. One was the kind of gyrations you have to go through as a married couple who are parenting people who are also running a business together. So we would have clients who wanted an in-person meeting. And so Travis and I would say, who's going to go? I think this is more in your area. You should go. Okay. And our client would say, well, but I thought I was going to see both of you. And we were like, oh, uh, well, like, what do we do with the kids? Like, we still have never actually, I don't think we've ever actually brought kids to a business meeting. It has come up a couple of times that like we would have, like, can we meet at the playground for this meeting? Because- Our kids have to do something. So that's one thing we sort of didn't see coming. Like it seems like all fun and games until these like major logistical things happen. But the second thing was the company grew. (laughs) And so, you know, we're very sort of equitable and team oriented over here. So, but I had made mostly been leading like the homeschool idea and like the plan Uh and stuff. And homeschooling kindergarten is super fun and easy and you get your work done in an hour and then you're done for the day. But once your kid starts to get into like second grade, like the rubber starts to meet the road. Like you start to like, you, you have to learn your math facts. Like, I'm sorry to tell you, honey, but you just have to learn math, your times tables, your addition facts, all of that. And it became obvious as the company grew that I was, especially me, but really both of us were pulled in too many different directions. We couldn't effectively serve the kids with their academic needs. And I I couldn't serve my clients well enough and something had to give. And so we decided to send them back to school, which was at, and I won't belabor this story either, but um, it turned out to be November, 2019, which as you probably can do the math was four months before pandemic lockdown. So there's been more gyrations since then of like pandemic happening. But this fall, they are in full-time public school. Actually, for the first time, it was their first, first day of school ever. Wow. So, you know, what it looks like now as an entrepreneurial lifestyle is sort of different than maybe what we had envisioned before. And a lot of that, some of it has to do with the company growth. Some of it has to do with the logistics and a lot has to do with the global pandemic too. That like, you know, we couldn't have foreseen that coming. And so it is different. It's still, it still provides an openness of being able to decide what we want to do. And sometimes that means like, sometimes that means what we want to do within the container of Mugrid and what makes sense inside that company. And sometimes it means I have another idea outside of Mugrid and I'm free to choose what I'm going to work on right now. And like, you know, for me right now, it's partially starting a podcast. You know, that's one of my things. And so the freedom and flexibility to follow those little rabbit trails of passion, I'm a passionate person and that's really important to me. And so I think fundamentally that is a common thread, even though the execution of the entrepreneurial lifestyle looks a lot different now than it did at the beginning. Well, I'll I'll note as a side note that we will get into is nobody partially starts a podcast. (laughs) Well, I only learned. I just meant that that is one of my, one of, one of my side hustles. And I can't, I love it. I can't seem to stop having side hustles because I don't stop having ideas and they grip me and I'm like, well, let's try it. So it wasn't necessarily partially about the podcast, just that, podcast is a part part of my side hustle that's 
it is a, it's a part of how you express yourself. When did it become clear to you and Travis that you would need to lean in and really help out with MuGrid? It wasn't just like Travis's thing. Yeah, that's a really good question. So he had started out with a couple of consulting contracts that provided him with the opportunity to leave his job at at the lab, which you know is a cor- it's a lab job, but it's a corporate job, right? And so to make that leap and say, okay, he's really going to try this, and it was a combination of factors. He had sowed a whole bunch of seeds with potential clients, and here's what I could do for you, and here's how I could consult for you, and what I could bring. But and wasn't getting many bites. But you know how these things go. Projects have to evolve. The timing has to be right. The the client has to be ready. So it was about nine months after he had done all of that that he started to get nibbles back that said, "Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I think I want to bring you in on this. I think I want to. I want to hire you as a consultant." What happened almost simultaneously to that is he got booked for two conferences in the same week. It was the Battery Show in Detroit. And he had a speaking slot for that. And then he had a poster to present at Solar Power International. And he said, hey, could you go present my poster at SPI? And because I got a poster, I, I forget, I did, I did have a full session, a full conference. Maybe we made the decision to buy the full conference pass. And I had a full conference pass to SPI and I did the whole thing. And it was the, it was the first conference I'd ever been to as an independent, as an entrepreneur. I had gone to conferences as part of Lockheed, which is like, I don't really have a, an impactful role inside Lockheed, right? Uh, you know, no, I'm not making a sale. Like if I talk to somebody at the Lockheed booth, like I'm not going to sell a project to them. Like I'm just uh, some, you know, grunt engineer, right? I don't. And so it's a whole different experience to go to a conference, like with sales power, with like the knowing that I could help people. I could offer them something of value and they could say yes. And the things that I'm learning in the session are going to be directly applicable to the job I want to do, the value I want to offer the world, like all of that. And I got completely caught up in the energy of the industry. And I said, I think I really need to be a part of this. I am real. And now it, it lit that fire of passion that has driven me through everything where I was like, this is something I need, I want to be a part of. And not just as Travis's publicist (laughs) of getting him, you know, this is something that I want to take my massive brain power and put it towards. Walk me through then the dinner table conversation that I have to assume happened where uh, at some point you guys had to divide and conquer and you were donned the title CEO what about your skill set versus his skill set, visionary and a greater, the whole concept? Like, how, how did you all make that decision? I feel like you're not alone in that. And I hope that others who are listening can learn from what I think was a, an, an interesting way that I'm certain you guys had to go through that because we've talked about it. But I'd love to talk a bit about how you made that decision and, and what that represented for, for the business. I think like the other, the other things, it has evolved at the time, it made complete sense. At the time, I was the one who was coming out of a phase of being a business coach, of being a business consultant, rapidly standing up a lot of businesses for other people, watching how that process went, all of the logistics that are involved in that, you know, the practical, tactical details of websites, social media channels, marketing strategies, contracting approach, 
NDAs in place, all of those that those things that go into actually running a business, I was well familiar with. And at the time, you know, I'm an engineer by training, so I speak tech, but I wasn't necessarily in the energy industry yet. And so I was still learning a lot, a lot of the terminology, a lot of the concerns, a lot of the pain points. And so it made total sense at the time that he was coming off seven years at NREL and knew the industry and knew where the pain points were. And so he was the CTO. Like this was virtually all of his idea in an intellectual property and his technical work. And I needed to provide business direction, support, project management. And all of those hats in a small business when you're two people, or now we've expanded to a few more people, but still, you know, you wear all of the, like all of those hats come under execution, right? And so CEO seemed like the most appropriate thing, you know, as we've evolved, you know, and a lot of the work has evolved into narrative crafting, storytelling, visualization of the data to provide insight to back decision-making, all of that stuff is my area of expertise. A lot of the actual work has evolved into my area. So I'm now doing more of the technical work and still trying to wear CEO hats. And also I would say that in one of the big roles, I can't believe I'm saying this like on the air, but one of the big roles of CEOs is doing the deals you know, closing deals. Now I'm pretty good at closing in terms of like selling consulting services, but in terms of doing big complicated deals, like that is not my wheelhouse. That is more of a Travis thing who is much more of like a traditional sort of MBA business and economics thinker than I am. And so it's interesting how the roles have evolved. Are they traditional CTO and CEO roles? No, not at all. (laughs) The drones are coming. Want to win a free drone for your arsenal, Solar Warrior? Look, if you're building a residential solar business, then you already know that your site survey and project design backlog is a critical path item. If you're looking to rapidly scale in the next few months and close out 2021 with a bang, then you really should tune in to episode 401 of Suncast. It's a tactical Tuesday with practical advice on how to triple your site survey volume with two feet safely on the ground and zero redesigns or change orders. Even better, join me and Scanifly's CEO, Jason Steinberg, on Thursday, September 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern and learn exactly how to build a drone program and why it's one of the fastest ways to remove barriers to your company's growth. Plus, you could win a free DJI Mavic 2 Pro and be enrolled in the Drone Pilot Ground Schools Part 107 course. If all that sounds interesting to you, then go to scanifly.com forward slash suncast and register to attend the live event or watch the replay. That's scanifly.com forward slash suncast. Hey, want to protect your margins and get projects over the line fast? Look, we all know solar development teams waste millions of dollars every year on inefficient development. We both know that the old school methods of engaging with stakeholders, collaborating on documents, and even pitching investors is literally starving you of the one thing that you won't get back, time. You need greater velocity in your deals that only comes from tried and true duplicatable processes so your margins aren't constantly under attack. And in an increasingly competitive marketplace where 
even big oils getting in on the green gold rush, the right software will help keep your team focused and in control of what really matters. Lucky for you, Enian Project Manager is purpose-built software made for developers by developers. Sign up for free now and start moving faster with software made just for you. Go to enian.co and see what Enian Project Manager can do for you. That's E-N-I-A-N One last thing before we get back to today's episode. I wanted to let you know about an opportunity that just might be perfect timing for you. You might already know that I do coaching for entrepreneurs, founders, executives, and increasingly folks who are in a major transition in their life or career. And I find that fourth quarter is often couched as a do or die time of year. My clients usually really benefit from having a strategic advisor as an ally for not just wrapping the year well, but knowing that you've got a solid plan for the incoming year. Now, I only open up spots for coaching a few times a year, as many of you know, and I keep the roster pretty small, but I've decided that I'd like to open up a few more spots through the end of this year. So for the next couple of weeks, I'll be accepting applications to fill two spots that I have available. If that sounds interesting to you, I'd encourage you to go to mysuncast.com, click on work with Nico up in the menu, fill out the brief application and book a 15 minute clarity call with me. I'll only be accepting a couple of people this quarter and I'm closing this offer in a few weeks so we can focus on your Q4 and Q1 plan. So if you've ever considered hiring a coach, maybe now is the right time to take the next step. I look forward to hearing from you soon, Solar Warriors. Now back to today's episode. It's really helpful to be able to see even now, five years into the business, that it can it can be complicated to navigate the division of responsibility and be really hyper clear on who does what because there is a lot of hat wearing that's done in small business and, and we all run into that uh, you know but you came to your point from a perspective of being a uh, like a startup consultant guiding other businesses in that early scale and formation are, are there any specific examples of tools or models frameworks perhaps that you utilized that could be instructive for others that have worked for you and your clients So, like I said, I, you know, as a business coach working on helping people to build their own startups, I view my role as, as an engineer, as still as an engineer, as an architect of the business. And I advise all of my clients in the business area to view what they're doing as innovation, no matter what discipline they're in. If you're building something new, and that includes your business, you're an innovator. And so, you know, I've worked with people who like, I ju- I've, I've worked with a, a human resources consultant who's, who offers like training and workshops around diversity, inclusion and leadership and leading through change. And she's an innovator because she's putting the data of the organization together in a new way to serve that particular team and to mine their own insights. And it's not technical but she's still innovating. And, you know, here, business owners here in this space, in the energy space, it's easy to say, oh yeah, we are innovating because we're working on, you know, the bleeding edge of clean tech and like, and all of that stuff. And all of that is innovative. Yes. And also just by 
being willing to start a new thing, you're innovating. And so the process that I take for helping people frame their new business is very similar to the process that you might take for developing a new technology. It's got to be an iterative process. You've got to be willing, you got to clearly define how you're testing, you know, what you, what you build and how you're going to get data and feedback from that to see if it was effective for your business. Um, And you have to give everything some time and space and know that you don't have to see the entire path laid out before you, you know, the next one or two or three steps are enough. It's almost like you've written a book on this topic. It's funny. You mentioned that I have written a book on this topic. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) So my book is called Spiral. It's a catalyst for innovation and expansion. That's the subtitle. And in in naming books is so hard. You're supposed to name them something very practical that everyone will know exactly what it means and it's about. And I didn't do that because I speak sometimes in poetry. So spiral, a catalyst for innovation and expansion. And really it's a fusion because I'm an integrative thinker. What I saw was these patterns that building technology is obviously an exercise in design. We all know that. But building business is always also an exercise in design. And even your own personal development follows the same sort of pattern, the same sort of inspiration followed by action, followed by testing, and followed by a period of reflection happens in our personal lives, in our spiritual lives. And so it's really a fusion across all sorts of domains. It's really a book about being human. And I think We tend to, especially in tech, in STEM, we tend to compartmentalize our technical knowledge and our technical approach away from the rest of our humanity as partners and parents, as spiritual beings, and say, well, that's that area of life, and this is technology, and it's completely different. And the reality is that it's not. Like, we're all just humans trying to know better and do better. And so that's what the book is really about. It does offer some really practical approaches to how to implement that innovation mindset in business and in life. But most of all, it's a weaving of patterns together, which is really how my brain works ultimately. There's a book that I recommend called The Business of Expertise. He says that the the core skill that we can develop, I think this is true of all entrepreneurs, but in particular knowledge brokers, is pattern matching, right? The ability to see what's working and to be able to identify it quickly. And as a consultant, that's one of the core skills that you bring is that outside of that outside view and say, oh, I see what's happening here (laughs) because you've seen it before and you can quickly identify and and give suggestions. Uh, And that in fact is what in in large part what you and Travis and the Musigrid team do for your clients. I'm curious since Travis came on in 2017, how has the business of consulting around microgrids and resiliency evolved in the last five years since you all started this business and particularly as we see climate change and the climate crisis, you know, bring about dramatic weather related events right now, California is on fire again, a place that I never would have expected to be destroyed by fire, Lake Tahoe. Uh, at the same time, the New York City subway system is underwater and flooding, you know, two days after New Orleans was destroyed by Hurricane Ida. Talk to me a bit about the, I'll say the conscious evolution in the energy business around resiliency and microgrids and how for MuGrid, you all are packaging that for your clients. That's beautiful. And it really, it really has evolved. It really has changed. There is a lot more focus on the opportunity for microgrids 
to provide resilience, power resilience, community resilience, um, the ability to come back after disruption, after natural disaster. I would say in 2017, we were very sure that the reason that energy projects get done is bottom line driven, 100% all of the time, which that's why we that's why we talked about techno-economic analysis, and we can go into a little more about what that means, but it's basically saying, here is the technical performance of your energy assets, and that's going to be, you know, your solar, potentially your wind, but we work mostly in the commercial industrial space. So we're mostly looking at solar, mostly looking at battery storage, although it could be other forms of storage as well. And potentially, if you're looking, well, and for your uh, economics, that's what you were looking at. You were looking at this solar plus storage system. And at the time in 2017, there was a like, oh, and by the way, if you put a battery with your solar, it can also be resilient in a way that solar alone cannot. And isn't that nice? You get your resilience for free. That was kind of the image of it. There's a whole period where we had to actually define what resilience meant. Now it's almost a foregone conclusion that we understand it, but. (laughs) Yeah. And well, and let's talk about that for a second that like, First of all, it's not as mature as everyone thinks it is. And I think the, in general, right. like microgrids e- five years later, obviously we've we've evolved. There's lots of thinking that's been evolved. There's a ton of lessons learned. But these things, both on the economic side and on the resilience side, you'll hear talking heads, both in on the media side and the leaders of companies, talk about it like it's a foregone conclusion. Like we do know mm. all of the parameters to talk about. We know how to define it. We know how to communicate it. And most importantly, we know how to execute it. And it's still like, it's still nascent people. And yet we don't see people signing the checks. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, so therefore sites come, site hosts come and say, well, show me how it's going to be. And why did you make that assumption? And in a lot of ways, we're still saying, because one of MuGrid's core values is integrity and always telling you the truth, even if it's bad news, that we say like, yeah, this is an estimate. We really don't know what's going to happen in the out years because there are no microgrid systems yet in their out years because everything is still so young. And so, yeah, we've seen this evolution now where resilience is coming more and more to the forefront. That doesn't mean the system doesn't still need to pencil But there's more grace for saying, I think I'm willing to invest some to pay for the resilience. And then there's a question of, well, what does that mean? What does resilience mean to you if you're willing to pay for it? How do we talk about it? How do we write a requirement for it? And then if when we write a requirement for it, how do we design a system to to do that? And those are still outstanding questions, especially for people who are interested in the resilience and the performance of the energy systems, but they're not necessarily energy experts. So like they're buildings managers, facility managers, or capital projects, improvements directors. They are smart people who maybe have a check to write, but they don't necessarily understand the nuance of how to think about resilience. All they know is they've what they've seen on the news in terms of natural disaster. So all that said, what are some examples or instances or gaps that are still missing right now to help clients operationalize this concept of resilience into their business and into their P&L? Yeah. Okay. There's there's a couple of things. So first of all is the understanding of the definition of resilience, which we still as a community mm-hmm. don't have anything solid for. 
there's a working, there's a working group kind of in, out of the department of Homeland security that is trying to like write a paper about a white paper about this. But even that it's through the lens of the department of Homeland security, which is actually a lot more rigorous than say like your local middle school will need or your local food bank. Grocery store. Right. Grocery store. And so, you know, we are, there's, there's a lot of nuance to how you talk about resilience. Some people say like, well, it's the amount of time that you, your system can stay up and provide power after the grid goes down. Yes, that is good. That is one definition, but even that has nuance to it because it's not a, it's never just one fixed number. It's stochastic. There's a probability to it because the system, it's dependent upon what the weather is, what the weather was right before. I'm going to pause you for a second because I don't want to assume. And so I try to put myself in the position of a listener that might have heard you say it's the word stochastic and is in that meeting and they're nodding going, I'm going to write that down and go Google it later. So let's save them some time. What does stochastic mean for someone who doesn't want to raise their hand and say that I'll do it for them? Stochastic means that it has this element of probability to it. So mm-hmm. it means that it depends on something else, that you can't just say with certainty that two plus two is four. That's not, right. that's a deterministic math problem. There's an answer. Right. There's one answer. Yeah. This is great. Like in our industry, in our energy industry broadly, we are dealing with these stochastic problems fundamentally at a core bankability level, because I just did an interview where we had uh, a contributor from KW Analytics, KWH Analytics, from ICF and from Clean Power Research. And the whole conversation was around the assumptions being made in energy models, which are implicitly, by your definition, stochastic, right? Am I understanding? Yes. Let me put it very, very specifically in solar terms, because we can, and we can put it in battery storage terms, we can put it, but in solar terms- The files that we use, the data files that we use to determine solar array performance and production are typical meteorological years. And those typical meteorological years, you're going to see a P50, a P75, and P90. Now, what do those Ps mean? The P stands for probability. If you get a P50 solar file, solar irradiance file, it means that your the year you're using the or the the actual year the first year on site has a 50% probability of being better than that year. Oh yeah. Or a 50% probability of being worse. Yeah. You don't know. So that's actually a fairly aggressive file to use. Are you familiar with the work that um that Jennifer Newman at Resurity has been working on? I am not. No. Okay, you're going to love this. So They've got this amazing product. And if you haven't listened to Lee's episode, the the CEO of Resurity, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It it, amount, it astounds me. Folks are going to think that um, I have intentionally tried to go out and get these experts to talk about these topics. But let me just tell you, like, this is such a common theme right now inside the, the sort of the industry analysis of are we doing this right, that I've now had four conversations with industry experts like yourself who bring it back to like, we're using this model that is becoming a little outdated if we really want to dial in how like the weather is changing. Like Resurity is a great, a great example of a company that has developed models that allow us to parse data from one county to another based on like real-time information, not just a typical meteorological year and how that informs 
our ability to put better insurance products around the yield and how if we can do that, it actually ultimately gives our industry a better look on Wall Street because we don't have what's happening in certain cases right now where plants are underperforming and we've banked on these plants at a certain production, yes, P50, and the industry, Wall Street is looking at it going, I don't know, they, they've made all these promises. It, it, it's wonderful because I get uh, the honor of having uh, the ability to host some of these conversations, but as an industry, like we have to deal with this potential, you know, I'll say not catastrophic, but this potential like negative scenario where we have for the benefit of our early investors being like the developers, the people who go out and make these projects happen, given the benefit of the doubt using imperfect information. And as we get better information, we get, we get to dig in and operationalize the the learning and the new models. Well, and so that to, to back to the question of what does it mean to be stochastic? So yeah. we don't throw up our hands in the air and say, there's no data. I don't know what the sun is going to do tomorrow. <laughs> Right. You know, if I don't know that there are going to be cloudy days, then I don't know anything. That is not true. Right. Okay. there. I've been having conversations with Travis, actually, about how humans like to think in binaries. Either it is or it isn't. Either we have it or we don't have it. And it's much more the world in general is much more complex than that. So, like, we don't have all of the data. Like, I cannot tell you on February 12th, 2022, what your solar production is going to be at your site. However, we have a body of data from the last somewhere between 20 and 50 years of what solar irradiance looks like across the globe at various locations. And we can estimate, we can estimate some worst case scenarios, some best case scenarios, some averages, and we can put that all together. And that's what typical meteorological year tries to do. It's what P50, P75, P90 tries to do. But it's important that we all, as an industry, especially those of us doing the modeling, and then the modeling then turns into financial engineering, right? And investment grade projections, we have to be very clear about what we're assuming about those models. And so that's, you know, that's kind of, there's complexity there and it can be easy for a a regular old human to say like, well, I don't want to think about all that complexity. But if we're going to talk about moving the industry forward, like we have to not just model a cow as a sphere. Like we have to get a little more rigorous than that. And we also can't throw up our hands and say, well, there's no data available. We have to use what is available. Just to like kind of close the loop on the other conversation about resilience, the reason you can't say exactly how many hours you're going to get from a system is because you don't know what the solar production is going to be like on any given day there. And you don't know, you know, what the weather is like on any given day. You know, you you might be tr- cranking up your electric heat or your electric air conditioning. You might need to charge more EVs that day. And that's stochastic too. That's, you know, there's probabilities around what is going to be needed at the site onto the demand side, as well as what you can expect on the production side. And some of that has correlations. It's not a random distribution. It has correlations to the time of day. It has correlations to the seasonality, the time of year, the position of the sun in the sky. And that that affects both solar production and the demand of the building. And so because of that, we need to start talking about resilience the same way. It's not just one duration. It's the confidence of reaching a duration. And it's even more complex than that. It's like, well, what's the confidence of reaching your duration in July 
given all of those inputs versus January, given all of those inputs. And so, you know, being able to walk clients, site hosts, developers through those thought processes is part of this narrative that I'm talking about. It's like being able to kind of wrap your head around something that's pretty complicated, but walk out with enough confidence that you understand the upside risk and the downside, the opportunity and the downside risk. And, you know, being able to knit that all together into a decision that this is how we want to move forward. This is such a fun conversation because I'm, I'm seeing all of the ways that we're able to connect the dots here for listeners. Uh, I want to mention, first off, that if you're confused about duration, uh, we don't need to go into exactly what that means, but Amy's referring to uh, just quite literally uh, how long you're going to be able to provide power particularly through storage to serve a load uh, under different scenarios and circumstances. So uh, just in case that wasn't clear to you, that's what she is referring to with duration. It sounds to me like the work of MuGrid is this, you know, kind of coming back to this idea that there is a preponderance of evidence in our industry that sometimes tech is put in places where it doesn't work as promised. And the work that MuGrid is involved in uh, and the, and the, sort of the privilege that you give to clients is this fusion of designing these systems and balancing the resilience of them with the economics that they're facing within their business. How does that tie into that techno-economic core concept of your business, which sounds and on the surface a bit like consulting speak. And we talked a bit about it earlier, but am I, am I right in some of those assumptions? Yeah, exactly. So one of the, you know, where, where we mostly work is in the area of resilient, grid-connected microgrids. And so let me break that down. Microgrids is a collection of energy assets, could be generation, storage, distribution, and control that operates locally at a site. And we're talking about it in the context of behind the meter most of the time. So that's the definition of microgrid. So they're grid-connected. So you can use the assets, any of them, to play to trade against any other economic factors. And this is where the economics come in. You could, most often we're trading against a rate tariff, which might be about arbitraging time of use rates, moving your solar solar from one air, time of day to another so that you're generating at a, a low value time of day and then using the energy at a high value time of day. Um, we also talk about peak shaving or demand reduction on site. There are also lots of other revenue streams that could be out there like demand response to the utility. There's other ancillary services. There are sometimes net metering programs, but in some states, net metering programs are starting to go away in favor of other programs that more effectively balance what the utility needs to do to balance their own power flow and energy network and incentivize the customer to do it. So that's the, all the grid-connected piece, grid-connected microgrids. And then we have this resilience piece, resilient grid-connected microgrids. And the resilience piece means that the microgrid is capable of islanding and providing power to the site in the absence of the grid, which most of the time, the vast majority of the time, solar alone can't do because it's relying on the grid to to grid form and to create the waveform that you need on site um, and it has intermittency. And so that's what we're looking at at MuGrid is resilient grid connected microgrids. 
And so what we want to do is say, there, you know, there's been a narrative for the long, a long time in the industry that we should be able to have your resilience. And then also, unlike a generator, a fossil fuel based generator, you can also use these assets while you're grid connected to reduce your utility bills. And that is the very simple top level statement. And we use that all the time to simply communicate to our clients what we do. Yes, we're going to help you reduce your utility bills in grid connected mode. And then you still have the resilience performance when the grid is not there. Simply that's what we do. But the execution of that, how does that actually occur is much more complex and requires advanced computation because it's not just as simple. There's a lot of, we see a lot of guys, especially in the industrial space who've worked with, you know, very simple set point controls for industrial automation for a long time. And they're like, well, I can just think my way through this. I know when I want to discharge my battery. And even if they could think through the problem, even if it was that simple, why would that person who's clearly got years of experience want to sit there and push the button to discharge their battery at the time they think it should be discharged, right? You want a computer to do that for crying out loud. And so- so MuGrid does a lot of consulting on the front end to say, hey, you want to do something? You want this grid-connected, resilient microgrid? Okay, what do you need on site to serve those purposes? Yeah. Can we analyze that? Can we model it to serve those purposes? And now that you have it installed, how do we best operate that system to get the economic results you thought you were going to get? And that's where the economics piece come in. And anytime there's a decision to be made, when to charge the battery, when to discharge the battery, Heck, when you might need to flip on a generator, that's an optimization problem. And that's an advanced, that's a problem of advanced computation. And you can't just think your way out of that box. We're going to run out of time soon. And I don't, I would be remiss to skip over something I think is really uh, fun and important uh, work that you're doing that is not directly relied to the resilience of microgrids for your clients. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you are dabbling in podcasting. Well, I've listened to uh, well, I've listened to the trailer for the PowerFlow podcast uh, that uh, by the time this is produced, will have already launched on September 14th. And I think it is, it's phenomenal. And I applaud you, I commend uh, the work that you are doing. Tell me why you decided to start the PowerFlow podcast, what it's about, who you're interviewing, maybe even format. Let's just dig into that for a few sure. minutes. Sure. So PowerFlow what, was a an idea that caught me and wouldn't let me go you know, I actually can come back actually to that resilience conversation because we do- we dove pretty deeply at first into like the definition of t- technical power resilience. That's like, well, how long does it last? And when does your power go down? And there's there's that piece of it, but there's actually a much broader definition of resilience that's out there in the community, which it's community resilience, not just is your power on? Can you flip the light switch and the lights come on? But what does resilience mean at the community level? Part of it is power resilience. That's for sure. And that's kind of why we're doing this microgrid work. But there's a much broader definition of community resilience. It's it's psychological support for residents that they know that in the event that the subway is flooded, they have somewhere to go where they can get resources. It's, you know, it's about equity. It's about making sure that there's not just resilience in affluent neighborhoods, but in low-income neighborhoods, in multicultural neighborhoods, in immigrant neighborhoods. And so all of these other kind of social and non-technical issues often get folded into the idea of technical 
power, electricity resilience. And I, as I started to expand those sorts of conversations in my network, I saw intersectionality coming through in a lot of different areas of energy, Um, that there are equity pieces, resilience pieces, climate change pieces, that renewable energy kind of at that big picture architectural level supports so many different pillars of our human experience and the planet as well. And I wanted more. I wanted more of that intersectional thinking. And simultaneously, I will tell you that as a woman in the energy industry, I decided to be an aerospace engineer when I was in ninth grade, 10th grade. I got Peterson's Guide to Four-Year Colleges out and I was like, how can I be an astronaut? And I looked down the list of majors and I'm like in the A's, right? And I'm like accounting. No, that's not it. Aerospace engineering. Well, it's got space in the title. So that's what I should do. And I prided myself for a long time that like I could hang with the guys and there's definitely a lot of being the only woman in the room, like anytime you're in engineering. But I will tell you that making the transition to aerospace to energy, like aerospace has got nothing on energy in terms of the gender disparity of the voices that I hear in the space. And I started to make a list of like women and gender minorities that I knew who worked in energy. And it's an extensive list. Like I know a ton of people. I know a ton of women. I know a ton of transgender women like who are in the space. And I was looking at like the voices that I heard at SPI and at the big conferences. I'm not calling out SPI in particular. You know, I know everyone kind of makes an effort at diversity, but like, you know, the voices that I was hearing from stages and from podcasts and from media and, you know, media outlets were all pretty demographically the same. And so as we start to, as as an energy industry, we're tackling these intersectional issues in intersectional ways, trying to solve multiple problems with one solution or, you know, a simpler solution to address multiple complex issues. I was like, well, this podcast is, is the same as above, so below. It's all a fractal, right? The same pattern plays out that I want to promote these ideas of intersectional thinking, innovative thinking, start more conversations for collaborative ideation and like figuring out how we can solve more problems with technical solutions. And I also want to, I want to amplify more diverse voices, gender diverse voices and racial diverse voices in the, because, because they're there, they're in the industry. And to be honest with you, I find that the more diversity of thought you have at the whiteboard, that's what I say. Like my my innovation space is at the whiteboard. The more diversity of voices and thought patterns that you have at the whiteboard, the more likely you are to be able to hold space for complex intersectional issues. And we're fooling ourselves if we think energy is stovepiped, that it's just about electrons flowing through wires. Like it is an intersectional issue that touches every single aspect of our human lives and it affects our planet. And we have to start thinking outside the stovepipe. And that means thinking outside the stovepipe of who the voices are at the table, at the whiteboard. And so that is the birth of PowerFlow podcast. I had a whole list of like categories of people I wanted to invite on the podcast to be interviewed, but really it's simple. Like if you're a cisgender white male who is able-bodied, 
there are probably other spaces where your voice will be amplified and the powerful podcast (laughs) is not that space. Even though I dearly love and adore the thought processes of many cisgender, able-bodied white men. I really do. But this is not their space. I could get into all the intricate details of kind of how you conceptualize and and are rolling out the podcast, but I'd love to just uh, give you an opportunity not just not only to in- invite um, you know potential guests <laughs> who are not cisgender white males uh, onto this show, but where can people find it? How can they? Uh, what what kinds of audience do you anticipate are going to be attracted to the podcast? Um, and and are you do you have in mind a specific evolution like seasons that you're going to be thinking about? Um, so it's an iterative pro- design process. So we're taking the first steps and we'll see where we go from there. Um, Logistically, finding the podcast is easy. Powerflowpodcast.com will get you there, but we're available on all the major podcasting platforms. And I always refer to Apple because you can go leave a review. We always appreciate reviews. Um, And and leave a review for Suncast while you're there. (laughs) And then, um, but the vision is... um, I I definitely want to talk to the energy industry. I want to expand conversations. Again, collaborative ideation, collaborative innovation. How can we have more conversations about ideas and form more networking connections within our industry to solve more of these technical problems? So I really want to talk to the energy industry. But I also want to talk to people on that non-technical side who see the intersectionality from the other side, who see community resilience as an issue primarily of equity and community support and know they also need renewable energy and they want to save the climate, you know, save the planet too, for that an opportunity for them to learn and kind of come into the space of how that's happening with EVs and EV charging, how it's happening with microgrids, how it's happening with transactive energy. My current slate of like professional guests, we've got CEOs and chief product officers. We've got EV charging. We've got battery chemistry experts. We've got a state level legislator who talks about policy. We've also got a policy at citizen advocate who's been working from the citizen side with legislation to get energy policy passed. Um, So just a We've got a um, a lawyer who specializes in technology, specifically energy IP, and a Native American tribal energy manager talking about their vision for tribal energy. And so it's a very good mix of things that should appeal to the industry itself and also to people who are kind of outside of the industry looking in but want to be supportive of the clean energy transition. I am super excited to listen to these episodes. I've heard some of uh, the tidbits that you've sent over and uh, you've really done a lovely, lovely job. I also think that it's a natural fit for you as a teacher, a writer, a deep thinker who comes at this uh, in in abstract ways to help folks coalesce around collective ideas, not not top-down dissemination of information, but uh, arriving at solutions together. I think it's going to be, uh, I think that you've got a great format and I look forward to how people react to it. I'll note one of the things that I love, uh, two things that just thinking on random ideas here, but Spotify, uh, which I've said here before, Spotify has actually overtaken Apple as the podcast player of choice by most people, uh, according to, um, the research firm that 
puts out this data for the podcast industry in particular. And also uh, I found this amazing tool that I'll recommend to you and any of the other podcasters listening here called Chartable that allows you to embed a link that anybody can click and they can choose whatever podcast player they want. So we, if you, if you send me your Chartable link, we'll link it in the show notes so that people can just click it through and choose Spotify or Pocket Casts or Apple or whatever it is they use. And we'll embed that in the show notes so that people can easily find it. And because uh, folks do kind of go to the the podcast, uh, our mysendcast.com page and click through to kind of read some of the resources that we have left there. Well, there's so much more. I, I want to have you back because there's more I want to talk about with regards to diversity, equity, inclusion, and the work that you're doing there. Uh, I didn't get a chance to ask you about things like your you know, favorite books and how you uh, think about uh, your daily habits. And I'm sure we'll have time for that at another time. But uh, I want to give a, a moment as we wrap here. If folks not only want to listen to your podcast, but would like to just tap uh, tap you on the shoulder and ask you for uh, you know some time to chat, is there a way digitally that they could do that? How do you like to be found? Um, if you want to talk about kind of tech details, uh, you can check out mugrid.com and there's a contact form on the site. Um, I'm also, uh, generally available kind of on LinkedIn to connect. If you want to connect and, you know, mention the show, I'd love to start a conversation. There you go. So that's your ticket in. You gotta, you gotta connect with her. And in your connection request, you say, I listen to you on Suncast and she will accept your connection. Yes. Request. And then you can, and then you can attempt to get her to respond. But to please DM. don't, please don't, um, try to sell me like 500 solar leads in the next six weeks. I don't. I don't want that kind of connection. <laughs> I love, I love those when people are like, are you looking for solar leads? I'm like, yes, I am. And then you just, I just turn them <laughs> along. I just give them like one or two word responses until they stop messaging me because they clearly didn't take any time to look at my right. profile. Don't be that person. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction. Amy Simpkins, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? My crystal ball says that climate change is here. It's here. That's just what all of these things are screaming. And I am not a, I know some people come into this, have come into this industry in the past 20 years because of, because they've been worried about climate change. And I was not one of those people. I came in because it was cool technology and all of these other reasons, but it's here. And climate change is going to start to smack some people across the face and the energy transition that we've been hoping for, trying to plan for, theoretically, hypothetically talking about at conferences for years, it's here. Like, we need to do something mm -hmm. now. And so my crystal yeah. ball is that a lot more people who are a lot more ordinary, who are a lot less techie and nerdy are going to be talking about this and they're going to want to know and they're going to want to know what to do and they're going to need leadership. And that's where all of us as a community need to come in. How do we lead them through this transition? That's the question. I love it. Uh, more ordinary people will be talking about and joining our clean energy revolution. Let's show them leadership and help them figure out what to do. Yes. Amy Simpkins and her husband, Travis, are the co-founders. She is the CEO of MuGrid. That's M-U-Grid.com. I hope that you will check out not just all the fantastic work they're doing on their website, but also the Power Flow podcast, which just recently launched. Go give her a thumbs up, a like, 
And if you like what she's putting down, leave her a review on iTunes as she has requested. I'd like to ask you to do the same for Suncast if this has been a conversation that you've enjoyed. Thank you so much, Amy, for not only being a listener and a fan and a, a friend and supporter, but now a guest on Suncast. Thank you, Nico. It was my pleasure. Well, well, Solar Warrior, another one is in the books. That's a wrap on today's Wicked Smart episode of Suncast. I am saturated. What about you? Special thanks to our friends Amy and Travis over at MuGrid for bringing our intelligence up a notch today. And if you're eager to keep learning, and I know you are, my fellow Philomath, well, go over to mysuncast.com where you'll find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion along with social media links so you can connect with Amy book recommendations so you can get a little smarter and show highlights in case you missed something that's over on the blog just click on show notes mysuncast.com and would you please since you're going to be online anyway you know anyway would you go over to LinkedIn and leave me a little love letter I love it so much when you tell me what Suncast means to you. I'd love to hear from you what takeaways you gleaned from the wisdom and insights of Amy Simpkins. And I know that she as well would love to hear what you thought. How have you incorporated the learning into your own world? Leave us a comment on how episode 402 of Suncast has impacted your world. Or maybe share it with someone else in your circle of friends and influences. I'd be honored. Well, next week, we're here to help keep making you smarter. First up is Jen Newman at ReSurity on better modeling for wind and solar revenue. And then of course, on Thursday, we are gonna dive into how Matt Pateri took hold of the captain's share at Sunlight Financial and took that company public and to number two in market share for the U.S. residential solar finance market. You'll hear some numbers that astound you and you'll be inspired by this entrepreneur's grit. Thanks once again as well to our sponsors who help make this content free to you every single week. You can learn more about them over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's how you can also learn how to partner with Suncast to reach solar warriors and clean tech champions just like you twice a week around the world. Remember, you are what you listen to. I thank you for showing up again, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Kia, Solar Warrior!